Welcome to Owned by Everyone, a series of eight podcasts recorded at an extraordinary two-day conference held at the end of March 2023. Our venue was the seminar room at the Cambridge Conservation Initiative in Cambridge University's David Attenborough Building. Speakers stayed at Pembroke College, which also hosted a conference dinner with our speaker, the leading campaigner for our waters, Fergal Sharkey. The subject which drew us together under a phrase come banner owned by everyone first unfurled in 1985 by Ted Hughes, poet laureate and a great environmental advocate and activist for his beloved rivers and their wild fish, is the wonder, plight and future of chalk streams. What made our discussions extraordinary? Well, those who spoke and the timing of what they said. Ninety women and men met after nearly three years of planning to bring an unprecedented range of experience, expertise and passion to a subject more and more of the public now know is as urgent as the chalk streams themselves are valuable. We aimed in the talks we gave and the discussion that followed for a clarity to match chalk stream water flowing at its best. So we wanted to share them with a much larger audience than our venue could accommodate. With everyone, in fact. With children of all ages. That is, anyone who can feel that wonder. With policymakers and those responsible for making decisions about our use and abuse of the hugely undervalued but life-giving element of water in each of our homes and in the Mother of Parliaments. We hope you find these talks refreshing, stimulating, enraging by turns, and ultimately that you want to act on what you hear. Thanks for listening. We are now at the climax of this conference. Welcome, Fergal. Nice to see you. I will come back at the end to show you what we've been doing by way of gauging audience reaction. The notes that in the course of the day we have gathered for a closing statement, which we've mentioned this morning, and talk a little bit very briefly about what happens next in the coming days and weeks. I think it's really important that we seize the momentum that I think you've generated over the course of these two days. This is an open discussion. Amy and Stephen have been acting as rapporteurs through the first two days. And they're going to introduce, as economically as possible, a fully open discussion. At the beginning of the week, we had thought this should be Chatham House rule. Honestly, I don't think it should be. And I've talked to Tony about this. There has not been, except for me, an arm in the last two days. Everyone has been so lucid, comprehensive, wide-ranging. I hope we can just build on that. If there are doubts that you have about confirmation bias in this room, mutual backslapping, if we're missing something blindingly obvious, I hope you'll say it now. And I know Tony Juniper, Chair of Natural England, will be able to handle anything that comes his way. So thank you very much indeed. Okay, over to you, Tony. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Mark. It's an absolute pleasure to be here this afternoon. I actually missed the first one and a half days 
at this meeting due to having to be in other places, but got here at lunchtime today and very much enjoyed the afternoon session I just sat and listened to. Absolutely fantastic content. Now, having missed the other day and a half, I'm now delighted to be able to catch up with a summary of that from Amy and Stephen, who are going to give us a, a highlights summary of what's occurred here by way of prelude to a wide-ranging conversation in the room, open conversation time. I'm very happy to take any, any questions from the point of view of Natural England's work and any opinions I may have about this very important subject. And hopefully what we can do is now really focus on the future. I think there's been some incredible input here, some excellent uh, presentations based upon very deep knowledge. What do we now do to harness that knowledge for positive impact going forward. I think if we can make that the theme, it will then play into the closing statement idea and also hopefully take us away from here with some motivation to continue with the work that's going on, but to get even more out of it. Good. So Amy and Stephen are going to give us a, a short summary. Have you met everybody? Do you feel, have you, have you already presented? If not, maybe say something about your work, Amy. Yes, I did yesterday. Um, so I'm a biologist originally by trade, I guess. And I've more through time into a naturalist, a writer and a campaigner. Good. Well, please go ahead. Give, give us a... Oh, Stephen going for... Stephen's you, going to start. It's yeah. been planned already. Yeah, we're just going this way. <laughs> Stephen. Stephen Tompkins, uh, Cambridge resident, chairman of Cambodian Forum until about a week ago. I resigned because old age and everything else is catching me up. Anyhow, I'm an old school teacher and lucky to be an emeritus of a Cambridge college because I used to teach undergraduates as, and graduates as well. So please, please, please go ahead, Stephen, with the summary. Uh, firstly, I would like to say something about Tony, our chairman. It's lovely to have him here. We are honoured. And I go back about 35 years with Tony and Sue Wells over there because there was a time when you were the whiz kid on Spix McCaw and you came and gave a wonderful talk over the way um, about your work in conservation and since then he's done wonders and I think we're very very lucky to have him as chairman of Natural England. Thank you. Secondly as an old school teacher I must mention one other thing those of us who've been teachers are lucky to have people through their hands who are great and I'm very honoured that Rob Mungerman is here and James Murray White Where's James? Yeah, thanks. Um, those, you know, these 16-year-olds were, were a joy to have. And I would say to Mr. Crowley here, where is Mr. Crowley? You know, there's a, there's a chap called Tom Heap that you know, who I also had a brief encounter with. Right, great uh, You know, it's, there are great joys in being a teacher, and I didn't want to let that go. But... You were brilliant at dissecting rats, Stephen. <laughs> Um, right, okay. <laughs> now, um, uh, Mark Wormwood, first of all, I would like to say, with John Fanshawe, have been absolutely fantastic in doing what they've done. Mark said to me, can you identify the themes or questions that have emerged from the two days talks that will help us to plot the way forward for our talk stream? One of the big questions is policy, communication, and investment. Now, that's a very big ask, but I would say straight away that you have had a taste of what this university can do at its best. The Cambridge Conservation Initiative is wonderful in bringing people like this together, and it's in that spirit that I would first say that the richness of knowledge 
and talent which has come together in the last two days have been absolutely fantastic. I want next to say something about holism and reductionism. These are philosophical ideas of taking something totally whole and taking it to pieces. The reductionists do the latter. And there are kinships between the poet finding the right word to go in a sentence and the scientist doing his measurements with phosphate. And, and it's that kinship between a concern for detail and yet a concern for the whole picture, which has been a big part of what we've been about today. So thank you for all the contributions to all those several people that have been made. But prime things which come out, I think, are those conversations about our relationship with nature. This is a really, really big one because many, many people are not reared to think of themselves as part of the ecosystem. Paul Pausland raised this with his rights of rivers. And the flip side of the coin is what we heard later today from Carol about law and, and environment. John Murray White, uh, sorry, um, James, said last night uh, on the video that we watched that we are nature. We are not just humans. We are more than humans. And that's really important for us to see ourselves in the, the whole of nature as a part of the, a cog in the system. So from that relationship with nature, I will hand over now to Amy Jane. Thanks, Stephen. The themes that have emerged, wonder, the wonder of the biodiversity that is on the doorstep of those that, of us that are fortunate to live near a chalk stream. That biodiversity loss is cultural loss. That celebrating what we have is hugely important. It's a positive thing. We can be all doom and gloom and talk about what we're losing, but if we celebrate what we have, there are opportunities to engage people. We talked about the rights of nature. We've talked about spirituality, uncomfortably for some people, maybe. And we have questioned and challenged governance and management and regulation. I would like to say it's been wonderful to be in this room full of such care and such wisdom. You are the wisdom keepers. Such exemplary guardianship by lots of you. But let's come back to the title of this gathering, Owned by Everyone. Who are we? We are not everyone. I'm looking around this room and you're all wonderful. But a lot of you have things in common. I'm looking around and I see a lot of white faces. This is a room in which I feel young and I'm 53. <laughs> Bless you all. <laughs> Me feel young. That's really nice. <laughs> I'm also one of relatively few women in this room. We all have benefited from experience, from education, from lives that have given us the opportunity to engage with these astonishingly wonderful habitats. When we talk about inclusivity, we mean giving consideration to the absent and the voiceless. And the voiceless include all the non-human nature. It's really important that we consider them. I love Paul's idea about having a representative for rivers when decisions are being made. It links to an idea that a brilliant guy called Matt McCarthy talks about the children's fire when Indigenous communities in North America gather to make decisions. 
they light a fire that represents those yet to come and the and the young. And it just reminds that gathering when they're making their decisions to consider that. And if you have the equivalent of someone voicing the nature for a river, for a, for a species, for a, a habitat, an ecosystem, um, that's an important thing, a valuable thing. As for considering the absent, we need to consider the, the people that aren't here as well. Think about who might be missing. On that, on that Mentimeter, where we were talking about what we, how we interact with rivers, what our relationship with rivers are, I would love to have seen a category for using a river to escape from your parents. Important place to hang out. So that's what happens. That happens on my local river. And I mean, how you, how you calculate the value of that to those youngsters who we can look at disapprovingly or disparagingly. I don't know. They're growing up with that place meaning something to them. And it doesn't just mean thinking about the people, but what they can, for how they can connect and, and, and assuming that if we introduce them all to chalk streams, they'll all suddenly become like us, they'll all suddenly care in the way that we do, because they matter even if they don't care. These people are voters or will become voters when they grow up. They're consumers and they are influencers within their own community. So this stuff really does matter. And how do we, how do we engage them? Obviously, you know what I'm going to say. I that we need to engage them by giving them more access, more opportunities to engage with nature. And um, Stuart, your response about having little hope, I, I, I know you agree with, with me on a lot of this, but having little hope of the angling community embracing increased access um, and that, that, that access might be a dream. If so, it's a dream that all of Scotland are having. It is a dream that may become reality because we, mm. as Carol confirmed, two pieces of legislation potentially looming, the Environmental Rights Bill and if, as they were indicating, they might legislate on a right to roam, then this, this could happen with, without um, the people in this room making a decision. It could overtake us and that will bring people to the table because if we think it's going to happen, then it becomes in everybody's interest to get together and talk about how it can happen and how it can happen in a way that doesn't damage nature and can be responsible. And I'd just like to finish my little introduction bit by... A word about change coming. Now, when I was at school, we did a little bit of Ted Hughes. And, I, and this is a, the first Hughes poem that, that we studied. And there is a line which I'm going to try and remember. Nothing has changed since I began. My eye has permitted no change. I'm going to keep things like this. That's hawk roosting. A couple of years ago, I picked up a sparrow hawk off the road, been killed by a car. And I thought you didn't want, you, you wanted to keep control of things. You thought you had dominion over your world. You didn't want anything to change, but the world has changed. Poor little bird. So dominant in your world and yet just so vulnerable. Change is coming. Change is part of nature. And I think we could stay one, one step ahead of it, not fear it. Let's be part of that change and mould how it happens. I'd just like to say a little bit about chalk streams. It's great that John Granger Wilson is here because he gave us the great gospel to follow. That is, do something about the way that the streams have been confined. We need to return our rivers to the, to the aegis of their own floodplain as much as possible. That would be a great thing to do. We've got big problems with phosphate pollution and we've got big problems with flow. 
Those I think we can address and are being addressed. But it's great, uh, Charles, to hear from you and to great to have your leadership suggestion that we head for the grant of catchment as a special place. On that note, I would just say that our local water company is making moves. Three or four years ago, I went to see Chris Smith, who was here on our first day, and said to him, what the hell are you going to do about this water company of yours because you're wrecking the environment? We are not going to have enough water in the future. I said this 10 years ago with... Bob Evans, who was on our committee, we, we published then that we needed a reservoir and it was denied by Environment Agency and the water company. It's taken a long time to get that point across. So we are making progress, but with Cambridge Water, it's extremely slow. And therefore, we've got to, I think, go to the politicians and treat them in the way they deserve. David Holroyd came with a message from David Attenborough. You won't get anywhere with a politician unless the public are biting their ankles. That's what we've got to do. And it's very tough, and I'm very impressed that Pippa has taken up the challenge this year. But I think that's another opener for now. Thank, thank you very much indeed, Stephen. Let's open up to the room now. So comments, thoughts, reflections, ideas about the future. Uh, why don't we have groups of three uh, just to get the ball rolling, and then I'll invite panellists to come back in and we can see where it goes. So there's three gentlemen over there. So one in the middle first, we'll jump to the left there. Hello, uh, David Horroy speaking. First of all, as I explained yesterday, I'm a lifelong fisherman, so I just like Stuart. I'm always an optimist. I'm always seeing the glass half full. Otherwise, I would never go fishing. Yes, never that's one it. point. The second point, the real point, I make here is having seen this and really been inspired by what it is. I'm always been a believer of the whole being having far more effect than the individual parts, and I think that's the message we need to create. Yeah. So we must not lose what we have generated today. Yeah. That said, I still think that the two biggest issues that we have to address is the political will and the driving force that motivation of the motor water companies. Until we move those two, we were not going to get anywhere. Yeah. We have to address the almost obscene levels of profits and profiteering that exists within those water companies and lack of accountability. And we must get an enforcement organization that enforces Without that, we'll move forward. We don't need new legislation. We just need the environment agencies to enforce the laws that exist. Thank you. Gentlemen, uh, yes, it's up the hand there, I think. Phil Hicks from Wildfish. I'm afraid this is a, a lawyer talking about procedural issues, so it's not very exciting, <laughs> but I think it is important. Yes. And it arises out of Charles's excellent work and presentation. He showed a slide dealing with when abstraction reduction are scheduled. And he pointed out correctly that they're mostly a long way away. What we need to realize, I think, is that these reductions depend in many cases on the provision of major infrastructure. And the dates for the provision of that infrastructure, as in the emerging plan, will mostly be extremely optimistic. Yeah. In other words, the earliest theoretical date they can get away with. And they may be very unrealistic. 
They don't provide typically any range of outcomes as we would normally expect, no central estimate. And in practice, it's going to be much longer. That means abstraction will continue for much longer than the plans suggest. So what can we do about it? Yes. I think it's a subset of transparency. Without transparency, it's difficult to educate. And I think three things the water companies need to do. They need to provide realistic assessment of the likely data provision. They need to provide greater transparency during the projects so that one can criticize if they're not getting on with it. And we need to know what their plan B is if these infrastructure projects are delayed. Without that information, it's very difficult to effectively bite people's ankles. I just um, intercede with the thought that comes to mind as you're describing that situation, which, which, is, which is not wrong, is the extent to which infrastructure, especially big bits of concrete, you know, it generally provokes a reaction against it locally. If you look at the Abingdon Reservoir that's not been built in the River Thames catchment, which should take pressure off the River Kennet if it ever gets built, part of the reason why it's not being built is local opposition against it. And so everyone in this room can see there is a need for a big reservoir, but it's the voices that react locally, which then feed into the political process, which means delay follows. And so maybe one thing for the future is for Chalkstream advocates to be visible backers of new reservoirs and not let yeah. there be a single voice which says, don't build one near me, which is what keeps trumping every proposal that comes forward. Gentlemen there. Hi, hi Tony. James Murray White. I've risen from my COVID bed to, to join you all. So, so COVID? <laughs> 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 I've been tested negative. <laughs> okay. So, no, no. But, but just on that, on, on that, that point, come with me to Lincolnshire, Screddington, and meet the 400 people who are losing their homes. A permaculture farmer, a whole bunch of people have aged. And so, yes, it's infrastructure, yeah. massive infrastructure, the human and as well as the ecological impact. Yeah. You know, it's, exactly. it's not in my back, backyard, it's, it's miles up the road. So I feel yeah. really passionate about that. Yeah. And so, you know, so the opposition to infrastructure, it, it, you know, it's not without its foundations. You know, HS2, another great example, exactly. I mean, more controversial than any reservoir, but nonetheless, you know, it does have real impacts on real people. It's not going lives. to be built. Don't rely on it. Yeah. yeah, well, there we are. However, there is a little phrase that sometimes is worth bearing in mind in politics. Everyone's heard of NIMBY, not in my backyard. There's a more important phrase called NIMTO, which is not in my term of office. And those reservoirs that we're talking about are definitely NIMTO projects. And therefore, it doesn't really matter whether we think they're going to be built or not, because it's NIMTO Sorry, I'm just kind of getting slightly off the piece here. Um, uh, John, microphone, um, two more here on the side there, and then we'll come to, yeah, make notes, Amy and Stephen, and then we'll come back. It's just a response to your comment just then about HS2. Obviously, there's been a lot of opposition to HS2, yet HS2 happened. So how can HS2 happen with lots of opposition? And the reservoir not happen, which actually is possibly more important in probably in this room's view, more important than HS2. So just, uh, it's just an observation that politically, HS2 got over the line, yet for some reason, the destruction of chalk streams isn't politically seen as important enough to actually overrule and create new reservoirs. So there's something going wrong in the political process that yeah. wasn't 
does happen and one doesn't. Yeah. So HS2, just to kind of reflect on that just very briefly as the microphone's being passed back, um, Act of Parliament 2017, cross-party support, Labour, Conservatives, went through with a major majority and out of 650 MPs, 600 of them didn't have HS2 going through their constituency. So there's another acronym there, not in my constituency, which is another political dynamic, of course, whereas reservoirs, they're very kind of there. And they tend to, they, are they national infrastructure? Do they go through a national process? No, not, it depends on the size. Yeah, exactly. So, so the politics depends upon, you know, who's deciding and the context of the decision. So one more there, then we'll go to Fiona okay. and then we're going to... Yeah. Yeah. Nick Meacham, Wild, Wild Fish... I think we should be absolutely clear about this. We can either have reservoirs or chalk streams, but you can't have both. End of discussion. Thank you. Fiona, would you like to come in? And then, and then yeah. we'll go to the panel. Thanks. I just wanted to make a, a, a process point, really. We've heard a lot today about putting water at the heart of everything. And I think we all agree with that. My heart is certainly there. But actually, the reality, and Pippa made this point very strongly, is that we're trying to meet so many ambitions at the moment, you know, for, for, for nature, for climate, for farming, for food, for housing, for infrastructure, for transport, for energy. I mean, the list goes on and on. And we don't have any mechanisms. And it's no wonder to me that, you know, we, we have fights about everything because everything yeah. is driven down silos and yeah. everything is determined exactly. within a narrow framework. So, you know, my particular process point is it's a plug to some work that I've been leading in Cambridgeshire in the last 18 months or so for a land use framework for Cambridgeshire, which is about bringing together in one place all the information spatially around all of these ambitions yeah. and actually just putting them together and then having a public debate about them. And, you know, the problem is the reservoir comes out of the blue and everyone goes, no, 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 we don't want a reservoir. But actually, if you put it all together and you talk about the integration of all of these issues and how... In some cases, we can, you know, achieve multifunctionality and some, some land can do more than one thing. You can have nature and farming. You can have public enjoyment and nature. But actually, in some places, you've got to choose and you can't do everything on the same site. And so to me, we just, and you know, having been around a long time and known days when there were structure plans and there were regional plans, you know, we've lost so many opportunities to look spatially at a scale where you can make those decisions. So we need to get that, I think, as, a, as an absolute precondition for resolving some of these tensions. Thank, thank you, Fiona. And that's almost exactly what I say to ministers um, nearly once a week. Um, so, Charles. On the reservoirs and other schemes, it's it's worth saying, you know, you build a reservoir, you've got to fill it, and that's an issue. We, in southeast England, we've got too many people and too few raindrops. And there's a range of schemes in the in the sort of planning. They're leaning very, very heavily on demand reduction and leak reduction, which will probably just will have to run to stand still there. There are some schemes which move more water into the region. The Grand Union Canal has pretty much been accepted as a no-brainer. It's an iterative possibility. There's up to 400 megalitres a day coming out of Minworth in Birmingham, out of the sewage works. In the first instances, you're talking about 100 megalitres a day coming down the Grand Union Canal, which is probably enough to sort out the coal, but not the coal and the lead. So I really do think we need to look at schemes, and these are ones that can perhaps happen sooner because you get less local objection that transfer more water into the region. And the other one is that Lake Vern really via the Severn to the Thames, first proposed in 1850 by a miller who was arguing with the London Spring Water Company about the fact that the abstraction of the Gade, the Grand Union Canal, 
was, you know, stopping his milling activities. And uh, he, he was the chap who invented the first effective rain gauge. But he also identified that if London was to continue growing at the rate it was growing, this is 1850, we just needed more water in the southeast. And he proposed bringing it from Wales. So now, 173 years later, it's in the plans, but it still hasn't happened yet. Another 173, so, probably. Yeah, 173, yeah. So I, I, I do think that more water in the southeast is vital because we've just got so many people and other schemes that do water recycling and desalination. The big infrastructure schemes do always encounter the local objections and, and reviews, et cetera, and that's why they get kicked down the road for, you know, so effectively. Thank you, Charles. So what we shall do, let's just get back to Stephen and Amy and see if there's any kind of reflections, any thoughts that have been sparked, having been here for the previous conversations over the last couple of days. Any brief reactions, then we'll get back to the room. Mark, is someone taking notes to make sure we're, we're catching that it's being... All of this is being, being recorded. Okay, good. Thank you. Good. Go, go ahead, Amy. Is it... Thank you. Just on NIMBYs and NIMBYism, and I, I'm thinking about what Trevor said earlier, that no one needs is either stupid or bad. Um, but there might be reasons why they hold particular um, opinions or objections that we can work on and if we can put ourselves in their position. And Pepper was saying to me just in the break there that there's a problem with installing green water recycling for housing um, in that it's seen as something that society won't accept. And I think is that to do with people not liking the look of it in their houses. Yeah, in their toilet. If you look in your toilet bowl and you see it's grey or it's brown, that people just won't accept that. Now, I grew up in a house where the water that came out of the tap was brown. And when I went to elsewhere and saw water coming clear out of the tap, I thought, it's a bit weird. It doesn't look like that in my house. So we can adjust. We can adjust our expectations to that sort of thing. And I think those should be easy wins through public education and through another phrase from Pippa's talk, this automatic right to need to reconnect or to connect rather. And I would love to adopt that and invert it, subvert it a little bit. Not a right for water companies to connect, but for everyone to connect in such a way that we understand why certain things matter and why maybe grey water in your toilet isn't such a horrific idea after all. Thank you, Amy. Stephen. Yeah. I'd just like to say something about the water supply, reconfiguring the water supply and usage was something that we were really determined to see improve. I think this requires more force from the water companies than they are applying at the moment. We asked the other day here for a temporary use ban to be brought in on the 1st of July, regardless of whatever rain comes from the sky, because people have got to get used to the fact that they need to save water. This last year, Natalie Ackroyd, Cambridge Water, was on media telling everyone in May and June to use less water. At the end of the summer, we used 25% more than the average, and in 35% it was up on the drought weekends, on, on the, the heat waves. We're on a road to nowhere if we don't change that behaviour very quickly. Kate Apple on her slide showed us that, that climate change is having an impact. It's driving soil moisture deficit down in the summer and 
all the rain in the autumn is needed here in order to wet up that soil in order to get anything into the aquifer at all. 40% of the time we are not topping up the aquifer anywhere near enough. So if the system is at presently unsustainable, we cannot go on with a zero deterioration program. It's got to be improved, and therefore the acceleration of alternative supplies from elsewhere, as Charles is saying, is really important. The second point I wanted to make only is that we need here an exemplar chalk stream that works and is running and is beautiful and lovely and which children can see. If we had that, then we would be able to persuade more people and young people that this is the right way to go. And I see no option other than to say to Cambridge Water Company, as soon as you have any savings on abstraction, we want to see them all taken off from one catchment area. The grantor is the ideal one. It's got higher status. It's been recognised as important. It's 150 square kilometres. And the rain that falls on it, 85% of it goes straight back into the sky during the summer. And a tiny bit of it goes down into the chalk. And of that that goes down into the chalk, half goes to the base flow of the stream and half goes to the water company. Our Irish chalk is losing a thousand megalitres per day from its river. That's a lot. It's 40 odd Olympic swimming pools. We need it. Thank you, Stephen. So uh, let's go here to Sue Wells and then, and then we'll get to Mark and then there's various other hands. Good. Thank, Thank you. you. It's really a question for you, Tony. It's slightly different, but it follows up on Pippa's great presentation. In Sussex, my understanding is, and I, th I think it's correct, Natural England's put out this statement of water neutrality, which is designed to sort of just summarise briefly, I think, slow down all development until you can demonstrate that there's adequate water. I mean, Tony can explain it in more detail. So the big question is, is why in this situation we couldn't have the same Natural England doing the same thing or in many of the other water regions that we've heard about over the last two days. I think there are, my understanding is there are some problems it doesn't always work quite as intended, but it would be nice to know what role Natural England could play, either doing that or through on any other of the advisory role it plays. I know it's not a statute body. I confess I used to work for Natural England. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Sue. Let, let's go around and get a few more points and then we'll come back to this. Um, so, Mark, I was really struck yesterday when case studies were presented and when John Trail planted that memorable, unforgettable, in fact, Yorkshire <laughs> as a kind of brand for what they're up to. And I think John asked, how do we pull these ideas? Because hearing Stephen talk with great passion local knowledge about the CAM is fantastic, but we have to connect up. We have to pull resources. And Charles's answer was the solution is through the CABA, the, you know, yeah. and there are other existing fora. But I was really struck that local experts still felt the need to ask the question. So in terms of Stephen's holism, Bill's transparency, I honestly think, but I would, wouldn't I, mm -hmm. 
but owned by everyone, inspired by a poet within the hearing of children, giving a voice to the voiceless creatures of our waters. We, I should somehow, the people in this room, of course, and I'm thinking of someone in particular who thinks we may be guilty of confirmation bias. So I hope he can speak up. But we find the most inclusive, the most transparent way of doing what's happening in Cambridgeshire on the land management scheme. I've just heard, didn't know about. And just being a repository, a reservoir of information and inspiration and celebration and wonder on which absolutely everyone can share and draw. I mean, David talks about the chalk aquifers as a kind of deposit account which the rivers are drawing their currency from. I just think we, in terms of interest groups do, river users, river wanderers, rivers as an escape for teenagers, somehow we have to find a way before we can kick politicians' heels. Of, and and it, we talk, and it's far more impressive than it was this time last year, of a groundswell, which is absolutely the right word for chalk springs, of public opinion, public care, public feeling. I think we'd need to find a way of doing that and fast before all of those EU laws which protect us, and some of them have gone. The water quality directives have been dropped as pivotal in this room earlier. Only two people knew that, that the government had quietly ditched this. And ditching is a brilliant word too. <laughs> We've had to find the most lucid, powerful, more economical than this way of grabbing people and taking them with us. And I think we have an amazing chance to do this in the next weeks, by the end of 2023, when that legislation is reversed. We need to get judges, dry judges' shoes wet. We need to make them feel what they are detached from. Thank you. So, gentlemen here, go ahead. Thank you very much. Um, another of spirited calls there. What I've been thinking about is the failure of the regulatory state as put in place by the Thatcher governments and so on. And I'm thinking whether you're talking about offset or of what things are not going well. Well, I haven't got an answer to that. But then I thought to myself, somebody used the slightly unfortunate term bottom up, which we do use a lot in participation work and things like that. How can we find a new governance structure to do that? How can we encapsulate all the interests in this room, whether they're creative, spiritual, scientific, heritage, or people who enjoy a day fishing or anything else? And I've heard very little mention of the Rivers Trusts because they are a growing and not that old organisation. I would say the closest parallel to them is probably the County Wildlife Trusts. They do have trust, literally, because they're non-governmental. They're voluntary sector. They're placed in the community. And I've had a bit to do with them, certainly the West Country Rivers Trust, and more recently the Wessex Rivers Trust. And I'm quite an admirer of them. I'm just wondering what people know or think about them as an agency to build some sort of mass movement to do something about chalk streams and more. Yes, well, well, what I sorry, what I was going to say exactly follows on from that and from what Mark said, which is the impression I have of this really wonderful meeting, absolutely fizzing meeting. You know, the picture I have of it in my mind is like 
one of those models of the COVID virus, sort of with great spikes sticking out of it all over it. It's a sort of dynamically threatening thing, and that's marvellous. But the picture I have of it is that there is a community here of extremely knowledgeable, committed, engaged, sometimes ferocious, if in a, in a slightly buried way, angry, adoring people who feel shut into their box. And around that box is, as you say, a kind of slow, laggardly regulatory state, unresponsive state, that even, you know, the marvellous schemes that Charles Rangeley has devised, look at that chart, all the big changes are being shoved back after 2040. And so you have this kind of, this energy, what energy in here? And outside, I feel a kind of, Fog of near indifference. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so um, <laughs> let's just have a few more thoughts and then we'll, we'll come back to a little roundup here. Thank you. Three more. Hi, Tony Davis, poet and activist. I drove here from a visit to my mum because I'm a fanboy. I grew up near Peterborough. It was the nature of my childhood. But equally, my mum, when my dad died, she remarried. And Terry, he's 88 now, he used to skate on Whittlesea Mere. So this is the largest inland lake that we used to have. It's a reservoir that could still be. On my way here, I drove the back routes and I came across. And guess what? It's all flooded. So I think we do have reservoirs. But we may be looking in the wrong place. And I know Fenland is some of the most expensive, but maybe it's not as expensive as it seems. The other thing I would like to leave people with is I carry this. I went to a show in Edinburgh to um, sell my work. I also work as a designer, not, not just an activist and poet. And um, they gave me a £5 note in return for buying something from me. And I didn't notice it at the time. And then somebody else wanted to pay with cash. In Scotland, it's a thing, apparently. They didn't want to use their cards. And then as I was going to give this as change, I looked at it and went, she looks familiar. It's Nan Shepherd, the living mountain, the Cairngorms. On the reverse, there's two mackerel, Norman McBride's bit of Gaelic poetry. In Scotland, they put nature on their money, and that seems to me an indicator of everything that we could do. It needs to work its way into every aspect of our lives. Sorry, that was a bit monologuing. Thank you. Um, so we're going to have two more. One here, Kevin, Good at that. and then gentleman over here, and then we're going to come back to the panel for a few thoughts. And then we're going to come back out there. Kevin, go ahead. Thanks. Uh, Kevin Hand. So I'm here representing probably the worst chalk stream that any of you have spoken about. It's a new market. It's an impoverished town, despite the racehorsing uh, industry based there. My stream has no water most of the time. Ephemeral River would be doing it a compliment. That's what I could say about it. And I was uh, at the end of uh, yesterday, I thought, there's no point. 
there's no point me going back to the new market community arts who I'm working with and saying, there's nothing we can do with this crew. We might as well just give up. And I shared these thoughts with uh, Uta. I don't know if he's still here. Yes, at the back from Denmark. And to paraphrase what, what you said, uh, I said, well, you know, I explained this. And I said, well, we did do an event. Well, colleagues of mine led it. A walk on a cold February night, a lantern parade, rivers of light. We got over 200 people came along, families, everybody, in this poor part of Newmarket. And Uta said, if I can paraphrase, don't worry about what you haven't got, water in this case and a stream. You have got 200 people. And this is hopefully just the start. So I'm now invigorated by uh, all of you, by these sharing uh, things. And I'm going to go back and we'll work with what we've got. Thank you. The gentleman there. And then, then we're going to go to the uh, back here and then we'll come to the room again. Thanks very much. I'm local. Was a boy brought up in Wiccan Fen. I then went away for a long period, as one does. I'm also an economist, so I feel slightly nervous here. But uh, <laughs> I'll put you more at ease by just describing a failure in a bit of work we did, which I think has parallels. It was for the Wellcome Trust, Gatsby and Nuffield Foundation, and the remit was to explore their work and possible new avenues to improving the public understanding of science. And we looked carefully at all their schemes and we came up with some other jolly little ideas that would improve matters and then presented to the trustees of these august bodies. At which point Lewis Walpert stood up and said, this is complete nonsense. You're missing by far the most important element of all this. You've got to identify serious, competent communicators from your expert communities who will relate to the general public. Yeah. I then travelled back about a month ago with a very eminent statistician who had been central to the work on covid and we'd both had jolly dinners and were probably half seas over. We'd been at different dinners, I'd say. And we discussed the problems of communicating complicated messages to the general public. Mm. He made exactly the same point. He said of all the people he had worked with in central government, Professor Van Tam was just about the only one who could get over complicated messages. So I think this community needs to be very careful in identifying people who can communicate and will put time in, and then to support them in as many ways as they can. Thank you. A very good point to make. Uh, just in advance of the Wild Isles episode of the new BBC series this Sunday, it's about fresh water, and maybe we'll take something from that about how to talk about these kinds of subjects to a mass audience, because you're obviously, you know, totally on the money when it comes to the knowledge in this room and the knowledge out of this room. The difference between them is the communications capability. Very often, not, not only. And so how we crack that is critical. So we'll just come back and have a little roundup. So just on that point about the water resources and Sue's point. Yeah, so Sue, we, we as you know, you worked English Nature or Natural England, the, the kind of roles we have 
in advising on various kind of official processes, including um, some planning and resource planning processes, which keep changing, of course. But the resource planning on water, water resource management planning, that's environment agency. So they lead there. We can get involved a little bit, especially where it relates to the conservation of protected sites. And so actually, Charles's point earlier on about how the SSSI, SAC rivers and wetlands are the ones that tend to get the more investment going into them. That's reflected often in the kind of advice we give into those conversations. To be honest with you, I, I don't know what the protected site dimension was in Sussex. Uh, which, which, which one was, was it the Arundel marshes? Yeah. yeah, down there. Yeah, exactly. So there we are. So sometimes we can get that kind of protected site triggering advice that goes in. More controversial than that in recent times has been the advice we've given on nutrient neutrality. So this is phosphate and nitrogen pollution of water bodies, including some chalk rivers. So the Itchin, the Test and the Avon, I think, have been brought in and the Meon into this discussion because of the impact on the Solent, SPA, SAC, and the build-up of, of nutrients there causing eutrophic conditions, damaging the shorebird habitat. But that plays back into the chalk rivers. And so there's, there's a kind of a connection in there as well. But what we have to do, of course, is be extremely careful, extremely sure of ourselves in terms of the advice we give, because not only might we have NGOs and campaigners challenging us with legal actions from one side, there's the house builders and you know local authorities who might come back from the other side. And so we're always treading quite a fine line in how we do this. But we, we try to use those tools to the best of our ability for the protected sites in particular. But of course, as we go along, it becomes increasingly clear that the state of the protected sites is ultimately a reflection of the wider environment around them, especially in terms of air and, and water quality. So, yeah, it's a complicated space that we occupy. And for nearly all of the work we do, we don't have our hands on all of the levers. We have at best some of them. And, you know, working in partnership with FC, local authorities, DEFRA, this is always part of what we have to do. So, um, Amy. Thank you. One of the things I most admire about John is that he thinks like a river. And I've said this before. And by that, I mean, he thinks about making connections. And that's what we're doing here. And we can go, we can take that further. We can, there's a phrase that's used quite a lot in, in activism now. I think it was coined by Bruce Lee. I might be wrong. And it was to be water when you need to be strong and you need to find a way, be strong, be fast and be actually unstoppable because water is an unstoppable force. You can, you can block it for a while, but it will find a way. We'll find a way around. And some of the protesters in Hong Kong in recent times, they had a system where they, they decided to be like water and they would assemble, they'd use their phones to, to gather in one place. And then when the police turned up, they'd disperse, disappear, and then gather somewhere else. And so they were always one step ahead. So trying to think like a river, it's a shame Rob McFarlane hasn't been able to say this. I know he would have something to say on this. Trying to think like a river. Think not only in terms of your adaptability and, and connection and relentlessness, because that is a, a really important property of at least healthy rivers that still have flow, that the water keeps coming. And, and thinking about downstream, so thinking about what comes beyond us, we need to be doing that as well. Wittlesey Mere trying to reform itself 
beautiful example. Springs coming up under people's houses. Another amazing example of water being unstoppable. And we could really, we could really kind of play on that and, and, and be inspired by that. And that sort of plays to a sort of, it links to this idea that Paul Parsland was talking about, about indigenous thinking and indigeneity as, as a verb, being that kind of thinking being something we do rather than something we are. Um, none of us can really claim indigeneity in this island that's just such a, you know, in terms of population, we're such a rich mix. But we can we can learn from that kind of thinking. We can behave. We can we can we can act in such a way. Links to you know a right to care, a right to take action, and a right to to recognise the importance of the of the non-human. The other thing that indigenous societies are very good at is storytelling. So to to take up on your point about about communication, we do need to tell better stories, um, and we need to treat those stories as something precious in their own right because they have a power to move people and to touch people's hearts. We need to be talking, we need to be connecting with people's hearts as well as their heads. We need to not just be appealing to the intellect. We need to be inspiring people with passion, with emotion, with love. Thank you. Stephen. Thanks. Several things. Rivers Trusts and CABA. The catchment-based approach is, in my view, the best way forward, and I think catchment groups should be representative of everybody who has a river interest. Now, locally here, things are very polarised between what you might call NIMBYs and those who want to push development very fast ahead in Cambridge because it's a big money spinner for the nation. It is putting a lot of stress on our community. And that stress manifests itself in distrust. So we have got to find a way of being trusted in our leadership of where water resources and restructuring goes. That's the difficulty. Now, when Mark Ando yesterday was giving his wonderful, wonderful pictures of his sharks and his fishes. He said that, you know, what really earned money in his drawings was the pictures of sharks. Why? Well, it was because of the film Jaws. So I found myself wondering, how can we have a film for children which excites them about short streams, majorly? Very Disney are listening. <laughs> How about Water Babies by Charles Kingsley, who was a university don here, as uh, Mark realises, who fish locally and whose prose is in the programme. I think Water Babies is a great little book. I think it could be used imaginatively in that sort of way. But chalk streams need emblematic status, you know, like tigers had in India. We really do need that force. The other thing we need for children is lots more places where they can get out and get near water, where they've got access. Around here, it is very, very difficult to get anything. And what there is, little there is that we've managed to put in place is, you know, over-trampled to the extent that you know, the water bottles run away because the dogs are there and there are too many children. It's dire. So the leadership for that needs to come from somewhere. Now, it might be a river's trust, but are river trusts really independent? 
I think the answer is that they're not. So what do we do? At the moment, the employees of our wildlife trust who work with water have their salaries paid by water companies indirectly. I think they're pretty free of what they say, but we are tied to this, I think, capitalist model of water management. I would like to see that change. I would like water to be seen as a commons and managed as a commons as we manage rainforests and fisheries and things. That requires a new kind of economics, which won't get us into the problems of the tragedy of the commons. You may not be familiar with this idea, but it's an old idea in ecology. That if everyone has free access to a resource, it gets pillaged. That's exactly what's happened to our water. The ceiling for abstraction locally for our water company is way above what they use. They're entitled to take much more. And if the ceiling is brought down, it's not going to affect their usage for a long, long time. They are putting the wool over our eyes. And I don't know how to approach things. I've been personally very torn. Do I work with Anglian Water? Do I work with Cambridge Water? Or do I join the Extinction Rebellion? Yeah. A certain gentleman present here, and I won't mention his name, said he sometimes thinks that if he dynamited Jesus' lock, people would understand why the cam is not there. It trickles over in a drought by the bucketful. It trickles over the weir, and that's all three rivers of South Cambridgeshire, which go miles and miles to the south of us, a huge area of chalk, and 30 sewage works. Excrement is what goes down the river as the water supply in our dry summers. We really got it wrong. Thank you very much. As a resident of Cambridge living near the River Cam, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's really not a great situation, is it? Just on that point, just to, just to add a further thought about that dilemma you mentioned in terms of, you know, do we work with or do you work with Anglian Water or Join Extinction Rebellion? I think this is where it is important to recognise that there must be a spectrum of approaches which include both of those things plus dozens in between. And the really clever thing that we have to master is to build a strategy that combines all of those elements together, which means a lot of people talking to each other in a way where there is respect across the piece from the people working on the inside to the people being taken away for public order incidents. And that requires a forum, some way in which we can get together to have discussions. And actually, just to pick up on what was said earlier about Charles's point, which I, I couldn't agree with more in terms of what is the key thing we need to do. I think the key thing, as you said, is to find some exemplar places where progress can be made. And as a result of that, people take hope, they take optimism and they copy it. But for that progress to be made, we need to unite the whole range of different actors and voices ranging from the water company to the local primary school and how we get all of those people lined up with a similar vision or at least a, a complementary set of outcomes is the key question. And this meeting hopefully will, will help enormously with that. So should we get back to Charles over there, John? Just I think it was come back in on this point. I want to add And then to we'll go to a couple more here. I just want to add to that a slide I never got to. 
<laughs> and in answer, in answer to Stephen's point there, the work we've done on the River Nar, especially over the last five years, has been done with the very organisation who dredged the river in the first place, the drainage board. You will at some point have to engage with the water companies and the people who you think are responsible for the problem if you're going to fix the problem. I really do believe that. And I, I'll just give you a little story about the the, the thicker driver, I can't remember his name, had a good thick Norfolk accent. And uh, as he was putting a gravel riffle back into the river under my jurisdiction, or also I was directing him where to put the gravel, he said, geez, I, I spent the first half of my career hooping this shit out the river, and now I'm putting it back in. <laughs> so, you know, got to work with them. We do, thank you. John, what about the back there, lady there, please? I'm just struck with the urgency of the situation and that you've met, um, it's been mentioned the political dimension and the public dimension. And the level of urgency I see is to a call for a minister dedicated to chalk streams, freshwater, water. And I, did, I, I must call it a fixer. I like things to be, you know, actions to be taken. So that's the sort of thing I'd like to call on. And a panel with... If this isn't a question, it's just a comment, really. Trevor Bishop's map, that myriad of water companies, to me that seemed, unless that's somehow clarified, that the problem will never be fixed or addressed properly. So that's the first thing I'd like to see, some sort of panel that would streamline that, not intended. So that's it. And a minister dedicated to chalk streams and fresh water because it's such an urgent situation. Maybe that's pie in the sky, but we've got the policy that could be um, implemented. So, um, the, yeah, so one there, and then we'll come down the middle here, John, and there's a couple here. Thank you. Well, uh, coming from abroad, I'll just say that um, these two days have been a wonderful experience with this breath of but the wideness of, of all the angles coming into chalk streams, perhaps it has also shown some of the weaknesses because we are all coming with our very own special angle to chalk streams. I was first reminded of that by, by Nick Mies, and he, he mentioned that wild fish uh, collects 800,000 pounds a year. The Royal Society for the Protection of Birds collects 140 million pounds. Rivers. Chalk streams are not that very sexy to the general public, apparently. Which brings me to my comment. We, we need to get together. I, I hope I've seen a lot of small papers, uh, notes being exchanged, telephone numbers, mail addresses. I, I hope this could be built into a coalition, as other people have said. There must be a, a way to build a sort of kappa from this room. If Charles and his colleagues can make everybody compromise and work together and have a working strategy, we can do it too. I've been to so many conferences where you go home and, and nothing happens. I, I hope this is not one of them. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Please go ahead. Hello, Joe Crowley. I don't know if there's other journalists in the room, but I, as a journalist, get to work with lots of different groups and therefore sort of make observations on, on how they operate, what they achieve, what their techniques and methods are. And so all I wanted to add at this point was, um, sorry, uh, Ash Smith was here yesterday from WASP and there's some brilliant organizations in the room who do great things, but I just wanted to sort of 
almost, it's not my job to represent them for a second. As we talk about exemplar chalk streams inspiring people, I would just say from a, as an outside observer looking at different groups, don't forget to observe each other. Don't forget to look at who's being really effective, why they're being really effective. You know, I made the panorama, the, the revolution scandal two years ago with Ash and uh, Professor Peter Hammond. I, I don't want to say it was all them because I know lots of groups in this room have done fantastic work. But if you just take them on their own, their dogged determination, breaking down the data, remembering to keep offering bite-sized chunks of that data and the stories that accompany them to journalists. They actually created a bit of a feeding frenzy with, you know, now, God, how many newspapers have launched Clean Rivers campaigns in the last, you know, year or so? Yeah. Um, it's really, really effective. And I would mention another one led by donkeys, which is not, you know, <laughs> which is not actually uh, river-based. But look at the techniques they use. And you've got people like a very young, actually a very naive campaigner, Max Staniak up in, in the Lake District, who was working on his own and was in a complete silo and actually then got in touch with WASP and they shared media contacts and wild fish as well. Sorry, thank you, Nick. Uh, you know, and, and it's been a really productive and so gratifying to see that from the outside, these groups working together. So I just mention it as a sort of bit of hope really on what, you know, small local campaign groups can achieve. Don't be afraid to raise money. Don't be afraid to put up billboards. Chalk streams are extremely visual. You know, so that is something that I don't think groups should forget because if you keep showing the pictures we've seen in slides here today, dry streams versus the NAR or exemplar streams, you keep putting that up, fly post it on construction sites in Cambridge, whatever it takes. There's lots of options you can think of and lots of different groups are doing it, but just keep referring to each other, I would say. Thank you very much indeed, Joe. Re really very important reflections. Uh, gentlemen, yeah, there and then there, and then, and then we'll see where we are. Please go ahead. Hi. I've just literally gone online and looked at a possible way of promoting um, across the UK. Last month, on the 3rd of March, was National Mulled Wine Day. 20th of March, Great British Spring Clean Day. <laughs> Should we not, to get that promotion and get something UK-wide, there's nothing to say we shouldn't have a National well, Chalk Streams Day? Yeah, well, you could have where every single yeah. person who's got interest in chalk streams yeah. do something in their local community. Yes, indeed. So it could be World Chalk Stream Day. It could, yeah. it could be celebrated in three countries by the yeah. and, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and that comment about um, trying to get get it off the ground and working with partners. Um, you know, it, it's it's something that could start small and grow yeah. and be locally driven. Picking up your point about your short stream that's dry, but you've yeah. had 200 people turn up for a, yeah. a, a related piece of exactly. work around it. There's lots of opportunity, and that would keep this collective together. Brilliant. Grow this collective. Thank you. Excellent idea. It's been logged in the register of ideas. Thank you. Please go ahead, and then we'll come to Sue again. Hi, uh, Ian Hawkins. I'd like to think about the difference between cost and value. We have this thing called cost-benefit analysis which prevents water authorities angling water from carrying out improvements on phosphate stripping. And they use the local sewage works to me, Fornham All Saints, and have written a example of Fornham All Saints as to how DEFRA, OFWAT and regulation 
prevents them from carrying out the actual amount of improvement that they could do uh, because they're not able to recover the cost. Bornham means hamlet by the trout stream. It's got three trout on the village sign because it was voted that way by the villagers when we chose the sign. What value do we place on the loss of an internationally important habitat like a chalk stream and the loss of an indigenous wild fish like the trout? Which village is that? Sorry? Which village? For more sense. In Suffolk? In Suffolk on the River Lark, yes. Thank you. Cost and value. How do we value more than the cost? Thank you. John, a little there. Thank you. I would, at this stage, actually just like to offer a provocation, which feels quite apposite hearing everything everybody has said about working in groups, which is fine. But the people in this room, us, I include myself in this, we're used to being in control. We are the people who run things. We are the people who tell other people what to do. Perhaps... Perhaps I'm not saying anybody should stop doing what they're doing, but I'm just saying perhaps this is my challenge to you. Perhaps we need to stop organising for others and take the personal responsibility. My challenge is to you, how much are you personally outsourcing the problem? You're saying it's the water company's responsibility. We need a minister for this or that. We need a PR campaign, we need a group, somebody else needs to do it. That's all true, I agree with all that. But unless we take on the personal responsibility of this as well, we're missing the whole piece because unless, how can we step back a bit to create a space which we might hold and encourage to other people to step forward? Because if other people don't step forward, if it's only us in this room who organize everything and do all this stuff, it's gonna be like the last 30 years of environmental action nothing will change. So it's a challenge and a provocation. Thank you. And then back over to Sue in the middle there. And then we'll go to Pippa and then we're going to start to draw to a close. So we go Pippa and then gentleman at the front here and then we'll... Just uh, and lady at the back there as well. Go on then. <laughs> follow up on the suggestion for a national talk soon day. I did put in the Mentimeter thing. It probably went nowhere. We could take ideas from another carbonate habitat, coral reefs, where we had exactly much this discussion is very familiar to me from the 1990s when I was working on coral reefs and we were trying to generate action and implementation. And we actually had International Year of the Coral Reef which actually has worked in the sense it's been held, it was to be held every four or five years and it's worked. That's that's global. So I yeah. think a national event of some kind. Uh, the Great British Spring Clean, it includes corries, but they never, uh, corries, jaws, trees, but they don't publicise it. And come to the Chariot Brook, Great British yeah. Spring Clean up on Sunday. Thank you. John, so back by, the, by the back of the room there, Hi, thank you. Um, My name is Antonia Sones, and I just wanted to sort of emphasize the importance of storytelling again, but from the perspective of like how we change our perception of things, like how Amy Jane mentioned that where she grew up, the water was brown and then it was clear elsewhere. And in Singapore, they have branding around new water where they drink treated sewage and it's potable water in the end. And so it's all about branding and marketing and the story that they're telling. 
and that wasn't acceptable to start. And then due to the high population, the scarcity of land and the scarcity of water, they accept drinking treated sewage. And if we don't change our ways, that's potential as well. And that's ne not necessarily like, it shouldn't be the last resort. Maybe it's a good first option. <laughs> and so I also want to say that around Jaws and Peter Benchley, he ended up lamenting the fact that he wrote that book because people went out mostly in the U.S., but probably elsewhere, and ended up fishing for those terrible beasts and showing the greatest sharks that they caught. And they weren't great whites. They were like nurse sharks and other really harmless sharks. <laughs> and yeah, if you want to follow up in a second. But it started ball rolling because people got upset about Absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah. And but it led to people caring and, and being interested in sharks. And he became an advocate as well. Yeah, yeah. And he spent his life dedicated to ocean conservation. And that's actually why I went into marine biology to start. It was JAWS that brought me to environmental policy. So sharks, I loved your work. Thank you. And I just want to say as a side point around maybe like having local aquariums be a part of this story, like bringing freshwater ecology yeah. to the people and the Ely Field Festival that's on April 28th, thinking about ways to like make more festivals. Maybe when the salmon used to run here, there could be like salmon parades, much yeah. like the lantern parades, but people could dress up as salmon or something. I know that the Feral Theater out of Brighton there's a lot of really great work around Remembrance Day for Lost Species. And the final thing I just wanted to say, engaging other senses. There was a great New York Times article about the sounds of ice recently and how the cracking and sounds just, I had never heard them. And I've studied climate change for a really long time. And it was very emotional, actually. I was like, oh my gosh, this ice is going to go extinct. And like, I'm never going to hear it. And people are incorporating those sounds and the images, much like what Jack does, like into policymaking presentation. But the the whales were conserved when we started recording humpback whale songs, and they were incorporated into music albums. And in Australia, they started recording songs of disappearance around all the birds that were threatened by climate change, and they made an album, and it was one of the top selling albums, like in Australia or the world. So anyway. I just think engaging other senses and it might compel people to act. And maybe if we put hydrophones in our rivers and there's the dead river versus a living river, it would motivate people. Because Jack said he's been in the water and he heard fish talking to him, like grunting and mm. chirping. And I've never heard that because you have to hold your breath and I can't do that long enough to talk to a person. So anyway. <laughs> Thank you. So we're now very short of time. We do need to finish at 5.30. So I just want to have... Yeah, we're finishing now. I just want to give the panelists one opportunity, minutes each, to come back. John, just there quickly, and then uh, we're going to draw to a close. Thank you. Terry Ifford, I have been the chair of something called the Mountain Heritage Trust, which is the heritage arm preserving the heritage of British mountaineering on behalf of the British Mountaineering Council. Now, the BMC has developed over the years a parliamentary group with which it lobbies and through which it lobbies. And it has an annual day in which this parliamentary hill-walking group is taken onto a hill with a charismatic figure like Chris Bonington or something, and lots of journalists, lots of photographs. And in that way, they have nurtured themselves a little lobbying group 
of MPs, built up over a period of time, but are now a group of MPs who speak on behalf of legislation for things like rights to roam and access and so on, on behalf of mountaineers. So I just leave that idea in the room. Thank you very much indeed. So Amy and Stephen, a very, very brief comment each, please, because we're out of time, just to round off. Where do you think we finished today? Echoing what Sarah just said, make it personal, not just in terms of personal responsibility, but Paul Housen spoke yesterday about, I love that river. And if you hurt that river, you hurt me and you will have me to deal with. And then just very quickly, um, if there is a World Mold Wine Day or a National Mold Wine Day, then I thought, oh, there's probably also a gin day. And there is. And that would be the perfect date. How about a collaboration between the gin makers and celebrating our gin clear chalk screens? Uh -huh. seven, seven Saturday in June. Yeah, mayflies, ranunculus will be in bloom. Let's have that. <laughs> Thank you. Stephen. Um, very quickly, just to ask the cost value thing. I think we need to have a local group who decide how the water commons should be divided and the benefits, you know, like uh, the land managed elms management scheme, having benefits, public benefits, need to be accounted properly. So, phosphate pollution in the river costs the environment agency a huge amount of money because they're pulling out floating pennyworth. They're still doing it years and years after we've got rid of it from the upper camp, thanks to, to Mike's work. But, you know, the environment agency should be asking for the payment for that from the Anglian Water, who are responsible for putting it in there. So let's have better ways of valuing environment and let us provide them and design development so that it is there. You know, doubling nature will not happen if we just do it with concrete. It's got to be done green and green and green before anything is built. And lastly, I just wanted to mention a bit of poetry. Um, more than 100 years ago, we had a chap called Rupert Brooke who used to swim in Byron's pool. And if I remember rightly, the poem, he said, something about the unforgettable, unforgotten river smell. I wonder whether that was pollution. <laughs> <laughs> it might well have been. Thank you very much indeed, Stephen. So just for me to just briefly round off. So that was a very wide-ranging conversation and I think really sums up the breadth of the discussion that's been going on here for two days. So beginning with that call for a holistic approach, a more philosophical perspective about rights and rivers and the love that we have for them, getting into a discussion about politics and policy, touching on economics and, of course, a big piece about communication and also about coordination. And so I do hope, Mark, that there's going to be some follow-through in drawing some of this together. You're going to talk about that. that. Yeah. So it does seem that there's a, a huge opportunity from this meeting to do something about a really, really important subject that has been rattling around for years and um, which needs a bit of coalescing. And actually, yeah, the communications pieces, I think, are, are key to this. I just finished with just one brief reflection on a visit I had to the London Aquarium a few years ago, going to the point about a chalk stream exhibit somewhere, a living one. And we're looking in the front door of the London Aquarium, and they had 
an English river, and it was a fast-flowing thing with brown trout and dace and grayling, and it was captivating, and it was by far the most interesting exhibit in there. And so maybe we should have one of those around places uh, for people to look at. Thank you. Thank you. Tony, thank you very much indeed. We did survey opinions. There are questions that we asked of Hillsdrow sixth formers and teenagers at heart, and a sadly old audience, only six sixth formers, came to a meeting at, on Tuesday. But we need to feed back to them. They asked us questions. You'll get those questions. We deserve to answer them. They're really powerful questions. Transparency, communication. We have had... A number of points for our closing statement. Some of the points that you have made. We've got a number of ideas to include in a closing statement from Tony Davis, from Tim Leach, from Bill Wicksteed. Grief. Very different kinds of points. Adam has been creating, and we've got three pages of phrases which begin with the river's tent is broke at Hughes. I'm going to propose that we do not, between now and dinner, sign off on a closing statement. Good news. But we've really, really got to do some important things. Tonight, Fergal will entertain us and shock us and whatever else Fergal wants to do after dinner. Within 10 days, I reckon we should try to get a closing statement. I already have a website devoted to the proceedings at and since our last conference, ownedbyeveryone.org. I'm really happy to work with Wildfish to maintain that as a repository. I reckon we are moving towards a publication from this, which will be online. I think we need to do that really quickly. And it's basically a transcript of everything that was said. And we can podcast it. Um, we can get it out there. By the end of April, the University of Cambridge Communications Office is doing a big front page, web page story on this conference. I hope journalists here today will report on this. Looking forward, we need to build partnerships, it seems to me, um, as clearly as possible and open our sharing of passion, knowledge, expertise more widely than we yet have. Talk streams are everyone's responsibility. We really need to work on responsible access zone throughout the year. Challenge exclusivity. World Rivers Day is on Sunday the 24th of September. Last week, I applied for a grant from the Arts and Humanities Council Accelerator Fund for a project called Living Water. And if you come to see my room, you'll know why. Which will feature the youngest professional orchestra in the country and the newest concert stage in the country at Pembroke. Rob McFarlane, before he was called away, said, of course, we can include clips from his film River, which appeared last year. We can have children's art. We can encourage Penland children to visit the Zoology Museum, Wild Fish and the Zoology Museum to visit those schools, to produce art, poetry, which they will see in this concert. And then we will take that round the country, adapted 
poetry, music, narrator content, and we will reach the next generation of water players. And we need to do it really fast. Here are some examples we've already talked about. Because I can't remember now Adam's phrase. Culture is no better than its rivers. A culture is no better than its rivers. A culture, one culture in Cambridge, driven by two cultures for too long. This is it. Short streams are us and our culture. Keep at it. Ted Hughes in my presentation said, if only you marshal public opinion, you can change things. He spelt it like that. He shouldn't have done. Touch people, move people, move everyone. Okay, enough of that. So thank you very much, everyone. Uh, all of you, Liz Ballard and all the team at CCI, led by Mike Maunder, I'd like to thank particular thanks to Imi O'Keefe and Lauren Harley for doing so much, both logistical work to make sure that we all got here and then designing such a beautiful programme. Charles, amongst his many skills, he's a fantastic photographer and the programme would not have been as beautiful as it is without him. Lemon Time catering here, Pembroke, I'll, I'll thank later on. My other co-organisers, Delaying this by a year has made it much more urgent and topical. But wise chairs, wise speakers, every one of you. And I think we should just let keep in touch. Definitely comment on any of these timelines if they're unrealistic and enjoy this before we are. I said knackered earlier. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this Owned by Everyone podcast. One in a series of eight recorded at the Conference on the Wonder, Plight and Future of Chalk Streams, held in Cambridge at the end of March 2023. Our conference wouldn't have been possible without generous funding from Pembroke College Cambridge, the University of Cambridge's School of Arts and Humanities Impact Fund and the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. So we want to thank them too. Now, go back to ownedbyeveryone.org and swim in the pool of water resources of all kinds that you'll find there.